computers online. Archiving 44K. doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanic. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment we are speaking to Ray McGinnis. Hello Ray, glad to have you on the show again. <laughs> Good to be speaking with you, Len. You have written an article here about a court trial that uh, I didn't know anything about. And I'm very interested in it because there was a previous trial in Canada here in which some people were charged with um, some kind of terrorism and things like that. Then you found out that it was a complete setup by the uh, RCMP and who knows who else. Before we get into that trial, let's talk about your new article. And, and well, go ahead, describe it for me. Sure. So this is uh, this is about four men who lived in in southern, variously in southern Alberta, in uh, the towns of Vulcan, Lethbridge, and Olds, Alberta. They are Chris Lysak and Chris Carbert, who were who were uh, public school chums from way back, and then uh, two other people, uh, Jerry Morin from Vulcan and uh, Tony Olianik from High. You know, and and he's um. Like the four of them had never met each other before. They they happened upon each other as a as a foursome in in Coots during the blockade, uh, which which sprung up in sympathy with the protests happening in Ottawa from late January until mid February of 2022. And these four were arrested variously late on the evening. You know, all separately late on the evening of the 13th of February until about noon on the 14th when uh, Jerry Morin was was finally arrested in Calgary. All of them were unarmed. They were, the search warrants for their arrests were for mischief over $5,000. And that's what they were arrested for. But then later on, on the, head, the big headline day on Valentine's Day 2022, uh, just about an hour or less before Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act, the four were uh, accused of conspiracy to commit murder by the RCMP, uh, like to to uh, you know to to shoot RCMP officers, and to uh, you know and to use this as a as a stepping stone to overthrowing the Canadian government. So this is what their charges are, and they remain now in custody without bail and without a trial date. I think we're about 545 days on, which is highly unusual. <laughs> and so that got my attention. 
Well, how is it they don't have a trial date? Uh, well, they, I mean, they did have a trial date in mid-June of this year, and the trial was to go forward, but then the, the prosecution dumped over three to 4,000 pages of brand new documents of disclosure, like an hour before the trial was to go forward. And the defense are like, you know, like, what do you do when someone drops, drops you know, three, 4,000 pages on you, you know, just, just before a meeting or anything, or never mind a trial date? And the defense found some what's called inadvertent disclosure, uh, revealing a number of things uh, that were um, not, not redacted information regarding things that witnesses had said to the Crown that, that, that showed uh, other things that, that raised a whole host of questions regarding the Crown's conduct of the whole case. And so that threw things out the window. The Crown is now in the crosshairs of the defense who have brought forward a CC1 code application, which means that, that the defense is alleging that the Crown prosecutors, one or more of them, are involved in a criminal code transgression of crime fraud and of gross misconduct in the conduct of their investigation. If, so that suddenly you've got Crown prosecutors in this case who will now at some point end up being defendants on a witness stand regarding their conduct and crime fraud. You could lose your license to practice law and other things. You could go to jail because the Crown prosecutors may have, I guess it's an allegation, so we don't know for sure, but may have advised people, maybe RCMP officers, maybe others, to do things that the Crown knew or should have known would be illegal to advise. So it's... <laughs> It's a very interesting case. All that's come out really are pre-trial motions. This is all before a trial date, which is, as I understand, yet to be set. Uh, and also, I mean, you, you got to have a trial at some point. So it's, it's just highly unusual. You've got people who have been accused of first-degree, second-degree murder, manslaughter, kidnapping. In Canada today, we've got a, a case where someone has been charged a first-degree murder of a, of a police officer, I think, in Toronto, and that person goes before a judge, and they're out on bail, you know, the next day. You know, sometimes it's with uh, ankle bracelets, you know, so that the police can monitor their every move. Well, if I can interrupt you, just because I'm getting a little lost here. No one was killed. All this is accusations of threats, isn't it? Yes, no one was killed. You know, no, nobody even went up to, to a police officer and poked them in the chest and say, hey, buddy. Right. I mean, you know, no, nobody who was arrested was, they were all unarmed. Right, this is over the mandates, blocking traffic, trying to get the government's attention. My fear about this is that they want to arrest these people. So they're telling the police, look, they're doing something more devious than you ever thought. They're not just making a blockade on a border they're planning to come in and blow up the whole government and if you go out and interview a few guys that we have planted having a beer they'll tell you everything you want to hear and so they send in people to investigate and and then you find out these guys are government agents that are the word agent provocateur that are telling the RCP just what they wanted to hear and then they go and arrest everyone and of course, the most famous guy is Ray Epps, I think, in America with the January 6th stuff. You find out that there's 
FBI guys, and, and I'm not sticking up for Trump or anything, but it's just of interest to me. And they go, well, how many of these guys were instigating something uh, and they're actually just dressed up as MAGA supporters? And uh, that gives them, you know, where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. So, so let me clarify. Uh, what we know is that there were undercover RCMP officers in, you know, getting to know these four men. The RCMP undercover officers weren't like old men or aged women, you know, in the in the twilight of their careers. They were young, vibrant, sexy, young female RCMP officers, apparently presenting themselves as uh, gun enthusiasts who are really interested in like, you know, like, you know, how many guns do you think are, you know, in the, in the in, you know, in the vicinity of, of, of coots or, you know, or presenting themselves as uh, as far right wing, uh, you know, polit- political leaning people. And interestingly, in this kind of an operation, this is a very important operation. You've got the government uh, saying all Trudeau saying all the things he's saying about white supremacists and hillbillies and insurrectionists and uh, uh, Russian influenced actors in, in, in Ottawa. So this is a very important operation. And yet the undercover officers that were uh, speaking to these guys did not have any um, recording devices with them, no earpiece, nothing. And these days, it's a recording device can be really pretty teeny tiny, you know, like a, almost like a, a microchip, you know, a, a, in a small cell battery in your computer. So, so there's no excuse for the officers to not have any, uh, in any recording. So there's no recording that can be entered as evidence in terms of what the officers claim that these men may have said. We also know from testimony, um, there was a RCMP chief superintendent, Kevin Kunetsky, who testified in the pretrial motions in Lethbridge Courthouse on the 28th of July. And he uh, divulged that, that there were, in addition to the local RCMP, there were RCMP from Ottawa who were also on the ground. And there were also other people who were interested and directing, maybe giving advice who could be connected to CIS, maybe not to CSIS, but but to uh, to Department of Justice in Ottawa, maybe others. But anyway, there's federal people talking on the phone to RCMP in coots on the ground, either federal RCMP or local RCMP. Again, interestingly, many of you know there's a lot of a lot of conversations that are not recorded as well. So it's not the way you would do an operation. I want to say one more thing about the operation. I mean, during the pandemic in Canada, up until this pandemic began, in every province, there were emergency management protocols for how to deal with a, with a pandemic of any kind. And they'd been in, in the books for decades, going back to, I think, the 1950s. And once the pandemic uh, here in Canada started, all of that, all of those binders of protocols went out the window and they started doing things like lockdowns that were never recommended in terms of pandemic protocols before. Now, in Coots, they have protocols for incident response command and emergency response command to situations like what was happening with the protest. But what they did was they put in place a brand new system of gold and silver and bronze and maybe copper and the whole way of dealing with the coots blockade 
was a whole new system that everyone's like getting getting used to and trying to figure out. So this is also a kind of a way of creating almost chaos from in terms of like the uh, the people who are implementing this brand new system for how we're going to operationally respond to the Coots blockade. You've got a lot of people who are not working with time-tested ways of doing it, but they're all saying, okay, what do we do now? So it's, it's very interesting that that's also part of the mix. Well, the whole thing is uh, interesting because I just, I, I'm not in support of this or against them. I just don't know anything about it. And I was really surprised to find the details and that I think any case that caught your attention, I thought, geez, I'd like to learn more about this. I was just saying to you before we before we went on the air here that there was another trial in Canada where there was uh, two hapless people that were, uh, I don't know, meth addicts, and they got talked into delivering something, and all of a sudden the RCMP crack a big, they were going to bring um, pressure cookers, and they were going to leave them on the parliament buildings, and uh, they, they thwarted this big terrorism threat, and then you find out that these people had really no idea what was going on. In the court records, they were afraid to say no to these guys, they thought they were going to be killed, and the whole thing was a, a farce, and that happened in Canada. Canada. And that happened, and and I mean that happened in two in July for regarding the July first, two thousand thirteen BC legislature bomb plot, and you know the judge that threw out the whole thing, uh, I think around two thousand seventeen or eighteen, which says that this is just this is not what the RCMP is supposed to do. I mean the RCMP is supposed to thwart actual domestic terrorist or or criminal activities. They're not supposed to nudge or create a terrorist activity from people that have no wherewithal to, to do anything nefarious, but for the help of the RCMP officers. And you have, a, I think, as many as 240 RCMP officers that were involved at some level, administratively or otherwise, in this. Although there's, a, you know, there's a number of that are principally involved in in in, in moving this along. But this is not. Uh, what Canadians expect of, of how the RCMP is supposed to be dealing with preventing crime by creating the appearance of crime. And, and it seems, too, that, that the, uh, the RCMP has an annual budget and a certain amount is d- devoted towards terrorism dollars. And part of that res- is the, the budget for, for the terrorism file depends on the RCMP showing they've got results of, of, of you know, preventing terrorism. So uh, if there's not enough terrorism going on in, in domestically in Canada, you can maybe spend a bit of money um, and s- staff time developing, manufacturing a plot, which is just, you know, I mean, again, the, the judge uh, who acquitted the two said this is just not what the RCMP is supposed to be doing. She said, Catherine Bruce, the the judge, said, simply put, the world has enough terrorists. We do not need the police to create more out of marginalized people who have neither the capacity nor the sufficient motivation to do it themselves. So, (laughs) I mean, the RCMP sometimes wonders why Canadians, uh, some Canadians are discouraged about uh, about the state of 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 the nation's law enforcement. And this is uh, this is kind of exhibit one of why. Right. Now, what caught my attention here for this trial was I started looking into it and and watching uh, the the limited information on on the web about it was that the defense wanted a publication ban 
And this is something I've never heard before, that the defense wants that. And I think what they're implying was that these, these charges are so crazy that if people start talking about it, then it'll taint a jury pool. We say, oh, these guys were going to Ottawa. They were going to blow up this or they were going to, you know, blow up the RCMP headquarters or they were going to go on a mass shooting spree. And all these things you will find out later were not the case that, like you say, I, I'm just leery of it. You know, I, I'm kind of like, you know what I'm getting at? Well, to be clear, as I understand it, the publication ban has to do with the information to obtain uh, requests by the prosecution together with the RCMP. And so it seems on the one hand that there's the specific information that's that's under publication ban, which no, no one can can look at. And then there's you know, RCMP will go to the press and make statements, which are, uh, and, and or the Crown uh, will make statements to the press, which reflect what one might think would be the substance of what's in those information to obtain documents. And then the press, CBC, CTV, Global, the Toronto Star and Calgary Sun, will report the information as if it's evidence but you know, information to obtain requests, as I understand them, are based on the Crown's narrative about what they think the case that they have is to convict. But that doesn't mean, I mean, you have a story that you want to run with to say, this is what we think happened, and we're, we're going to use it to convict these guys on conspiracy to commit murder. But that's different than evidence or proof. But that gets lost. Well, that's not even discussed in 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 the media. It's just it's just something is reported, and then it's just taken as 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 gospel truth. And so this is a this is a you know problem with with the way that media stories get get told. I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, early on in the in the Coots blockade on February the first, uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney went before the press. And expressed his upset with the reports he was hearing of Coots blockade freedom convoy protesters assaulting an RCMP officer. And he said, this kind of behavior is not acceptable and must not happen in Canada. Or, you know, good Albertans know, yada, yada, yada. So, if I had been watching that, that broadcast on the 1st of February, or listening to it on the radio, I would have agreed. Because... I'm not in support of any of any civilian assaulting an RCMP officer or a police officer. But it turned out, um, little noticed, that, uh, that someone, I think Keon Simone with Rebel News, had a, a phone conversation that he recorded with, uh, with RCMP Corporal Curtis Peters, who was the spokesperson for the RCMP in Coots. And and he and uh, and 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 Corp, Corporal Peters was asked, you know, did any protester assault an RCMP officer? And he said, no, absolutely not. The altercation in question was between two civilians. It's a, a different anyway, a different thing. Something happened on on a on a highway, and two vehicles had a slight minor collision, and then people got into a bit of a a brawl. But but unless unless I'd come across that, I wouldn't know that Jason Kenny was wrong. 
I wouldn't know that. I mean, maybe Jason Kenney was given wrong information, or, or maybe he knew that, that what he was saying was not accurate. But in any event, uh, most of us, as, as people who follow the news, will, 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 will hear and watch the gripping story on, on the news channel, and then within a nanosecond, uh, make judgments about it, and then it becomes a fixed certainty as we go forward, as we continue to make meaning of the world around us. Very few of us will will allow other new information that might contradict that that earlier story, especially if the story that we've uh, heard about and watched on TV uh, uh, is upsetting to us emotionally. All the more to be to be have like a firewall to prevent us from from re-examining what we've been told and what we're certain that we now know is the case. Yeah, that's exactly why I'm just, you know, interested in wanted you to talk about it today because, um, and, and plus when people are being held and uh, if, if they were charged, then they could apply for bail. Is that correct? But right now they, well, the, the charges aren't exactly there, so they can't even apply for bail. No, they 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 have been charged with conspiracy to commit murder, but they have not been uh, granted bail. Uh, and I understand that one of the one of the four uh, had uh, one of the. I mean, they they all have separate. All four of them have separate legal counsel. Two of them are legal aid. Two of them are not. But one of those four had, I think it's Chris Lysick, but I'm not 100% certain, had uh, you know, their lawyer go before a judge uh, with the application uh, to grant bail. And the judge wouldn't even look at it, basically saying, I know you're guilty, I'm not giving you bail. So, so this is where uh, we have a, a, a Western tradition, uh, which I was surprised to learn goes back before Magna Carta in 1215, back to 1166 with the Assize or Assize of Clarendon under Henry II of England, which, which states that the precedent was, stated, was set back in 1166, which said that if somebody is charged with, with an offense, that individual has a right to a speedy trial where they can answer their accusers and, de and, and defend themselves or be defended by, by, by a lawyer uh, before a court. And that has been something that has been a general consensus has been ever since 1166 in Western uh, governments. I mean, even you know, monarchies back in 1166, but as we morphed into democracies, that has held. But now under, uh, under our current government in Canada, now it seems that there are exceptions where certain individuals, especially interestingly, if they are accused of a crime that relates to something like a political hot potato, like the justification to invoke the Emergencies Act, suddenly they're denied bail. And a trial date, well, we'll see. You know, I mean, I think that um, I, I've, I've talked to some people who watching this who think that that the, that the crown is operating uh, in such a way as really to sabotage uh, even having a trial date. I, I, I know that, I mean, which raises questions about how solid really is the, uh, is the crown's case. 
Because if this runs to 30 months, two and a half years, then something called the Jordan Act may be triggered, which is, oh, it's taken too long for this to go to trial, so it's it's just not going to happen, you know. Um, in which case, then the media can then go to town and say, well, isn't it awful that uh, the legal system's not working very much, very well, and uh, you know we're certain that these four guys are guilty, but they're going, they're getting off scot-free because the, the you know there's there's not enough t judges or not enough courts to to get things moving along in a timely manner or whatever they might say. In which case, these, I mean, I think, I mean, these four men have been offered, you know, plea deals, and they are maintaining that they're innocent of these charges, uh, of, of these serious charges. I mean, there's also, a, you know, a weapons charge and a mischief charge, and I mean, I can't comment on those, but but the uh, but the conspiracy to con commit murder, they are all saying, you know, w we maintain our innocence, and they want to be able to clear their names, but uh, I'm not sure, uh, given the way uh, court dates get set in this country, um, if they're going to see it a day in court or not. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, kind of, I hope I'm wrong about it, but in in America, there was a famous politician that had a death threat against her, and then they found out, like, some kind of gang, 13 of the 15 people were all FBI informants and that. And, the, you know, the whole thing is kind of, a, uh, we're going to lose our funding unless we find some terrorism, so we better start finding some terrorism. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, Michigan uh, Governor Gretchen Right, um, yeah, that's Whitmer, her name. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, And it's not to say that there's bad people out there, and I'm not sticking up for that or these guys, but when you find out, wait a minute, like you said, you guys are supposed to be there protecting us. Uh, there's a certain amount of we'll give you some freedom to do some investigating preemptively, but now you're manufacturing the whole thing, you know? Well, think about the profile of these four men. I mean, one of them had a uh, conditional sentence. Uh, it was reported in the news that Chris Carbert had been convicted of assault, but actually it was just simply a conditional sentence. Somebody picked a fight with him in a, in a bar, you know, when he was about, I don't know, 19 or 20 years old and it, or, or before that. And this is in Alberta. This is in Alberta, right. you know, so like he's, uh, he might have still been a minor. I'm not sure. But in any event, that conditional sentence came out around 2004. But the, you know, it would have taken time to go to trial in that case, too. So um, so he has, you know, uh, this conditional sentence um, back in back in his late teens. And, and otherwise, nothing since then. Uh, and the other four, you know, no criminal records. Uh, they all have jobs. Uh, they're all known in their community. Uh, amongst the four of them, they have seven children. Uh, one of them, I think, uh, I forget which Chris, but anyway, one of them has had a, um, I know, uh, uh, custody of their of 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 their child uh, since that child was nine months old, I think. So, um, so it's it's like all of a sudden, uh, based on uh, several decades of no criminal uh, behavior, uh, we're to believe that these four, who were not acquainted acquainted with each other before they all met uh, at some point during the Coots blockade, decided, you know what, I think we need to overthrow the government and start doing that by having a shootout, the four of us having a shootout with the RCMP here in Coots. Consider, too, 
that the RCMP had at least 50 cruisers. So you got about 100 RCMP officers on the ground, plus helicopters and, and SWAT teams beyond that. So, I mean, who in their right mind would decide that you want to have a shootout with RCMP officers if the odds are, are 100 plus to four? I mean, plus the weapons that were that were displayed prominently by the RCMP with an RCM cruiser, RCMP cruiser behind them. Um, I mean, almost every single uh, rifle is just a hunting rifle. You've got no sniper guns. You've got bear spray. I mean, it, it's and also the, the the RCMP's handling of of this, which is which should have been, be evidence. It's like they've taken it from somewhere. Uh, guns were taken into a woman named Joanne Persons' home, and then taken to another place where they displayed it. Uh, Donald Best, who's a retired uh, Toronto police detective, who has a Donald Best CA, I think is his website, and, and comments on on this in one of his articles about how how the whole co uh, conduct of 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 the weapons in uh, that have been displayed for people to read into it and infer that there's uh, something nefarious going on. They're not being properly fingerprinted, proper DNA, um, not properly bagged. Uh, and the way that they're displayed on the table, and many of them, uh, the, the guns leaning against the table, if someone came along and bumped the table, they could all fall down. And and that's not that's shoddy, shoddy uh, collection of evidence. It's not not the kind of forensic standard that you want. When the RCMP uh, began their investigation into the multiple shooter out in Nova Scotia a few years ago, it took them months and months before they released any information to to the public and to the press about about what weapons might be involved. But here you've got something where a couple hours after the four are arrested, then the RCMP is doing this really like a photo op. But I'm not even I don't even know if, if the evidence, if this photo op and the weapons displayed can even be used in evidence given uh, the shoddy uh, lack of uh, protocols for how you want to handle uh, evidence like this if it's going to go to court. Okay, well, it's interesting, and I hadn't heard of it. And, uh, of course, um, um, I, I follow anything you're working on. So uh, what's the status of it right now? You said around January, I mean, July 28th, there was uh, um, some comments made, and now it's just postponed? Well, there, well, there were, um, well, there was the, there was going to be a trial around the 12th of June of this, of this year, 2023, and then the defense dropped these 3,000 or more documents. I mean, the defense was received all these documents in the thousands and thousands from the crown, and that created a no, we can't go to trial if you're going to do this, which is really like sabotage. But why? So why would the crown sabotage the trial date? What's in it for the crown to do that? They've had, they've had lots of time, lots of time to 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 provide the defense with with this information. It seems that the crown may not want this to go to trial. Otherwise, you wouldn't behave like that. And and they and throughout the pretrial motions, um, they. In, for several weeks in June and for the last week in July, they also spent a lot of time doing 
you know, all kinds of, of, of backflips having procedural wrangles to not move the case, move things closer to uh, the trial being able to, you know, being able to happen. And, um, and you've, and so, and so then you've got this, uh, you know, this, this officer, this RCMP officer talking about the, uh, about, uh, you know, this, um, you know, what, what, a number of things. One of them also turned out that, uh, the RCMP was investigating whether or not, um, the, uh, the, the, the people who were accused of, uh, of mischief and com conspiracy to commit murder, uh, of RCMP officers in Coots at the blockade were inspired by this because of the, uh, Netherlands Reformed Church in Fort McLeod, Alberta. Which was a, you know, when that came out on the on the 28th of of July, uh, that was a surprise to some of the people in the in the congregation in in, in Fort McLeod, and, and you know the the uh, superintendent, chief superintendent Koneski said, you know, we 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 were concerned that this this whole um, you know this plot conspiracy was rooted in a religious movement in a church, you know. Well, again, it it's. You know, it it just seems that there's so many moving pieces. It's like, like uh, there was a. Uh, Is it, to me, are they grasping at straws? I I wonder. I mean, you've got uh, you've got a uh, uh, some uh, sort of a warrant that goes to a judge, or or an appeal to even skip having a search warrant because of like an imminent like big event like like September 11th or. President Kennedy is going to be shot or whatever, you know, like a big, big thing is going to happen. So they get the judge excited. And on the 9th of February, they're starting to look for, you know, this imminent, you know, plot or something's going to happen. Some violence is going to happen. But but then they're, you know, they kind of move along, kind of mosey along for the, the, the 9th, the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, and finally uh, make some arrests. I mean, they arrested, I think, Chris... Lysick because um, there are all these police officers in the evening of the uh, of the 13th of February 2022 uh, and they're uh, you know walking around you know with their guns I think even with their guns not in their holsters you know looking scary like this is like uh, something out of a you know a, a, they're, they're, they're trying to come down on an occupying army or something and uh, it's making people a bit nervous. And I think I think it's Chris, Chris Lysak who says something like, uh, I think he's videoing this. And I think he says, uh, that's, you know, that's a really, uh, you know, fine gun or fancy gun you've got, you know. It'd be kind of fun to have one of those one day. And this is on videotape. But in the disclosure or in the documents regarding the charges it's stated by the rcmp that what what this gentleman said was you know i'm going to take your gun or kind of suggesting you know i'm going to start something but it's clear that that's not what was said but um yeah it's uh so it's it's very it's very interesting and i think too i mean i <laughs> i have to to peel through over and over again the testimony of of key government, uh, senior government officials and cabinet ministers at the Public Order Emergency Commission in Ottawa. And it was interesting to find recently that 
uh, Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland under her cross-examination on November 24th, 2022. Brendan Miller was uh, asking her questions uh, on behalf of the protesters, and uh, he pointed out a document uh, which was her scribbled handwritten notes in her notebook where she's uh, saying to someone called Dave, um, she says, she writes down in her notebook, we need to move faster. We need a new playbook. You need to designate this group as a terrorist group. Now, now she was, now this is like, you know, Freedom Convoy protesters designate them as a terrorist group. Now, under cross-examination, of course, Christian Freeland couldn't recall the surname of the Dave who she was uh, in communication with regarding this. She, you know, was it David Vigno, the head of this, of, uh, of CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Services. Uh, well, she was adamant that she never met with him in person. I mean, I wondered hearing that, well, maybe she had a phone call and wrote down some notes, but I, I don't know. In any event, I guess she knows so many Daves and talks to so many Daves about the need to designate people as terrorist groups that she couldn't remember which Dave it was she was talking to that day. But it seems to me that that when you have a deputy prime minister that's urging people in positions in, in the RCMP or CSIS uh, to, um, to designate people as terrorist groups, uh, and it's clear from, from uh, RCMP chief at the time, Brenda Lucky, in her testimony uh, before the commission in Ottawa, that there was pressure and eagerness on the part of, of cabinet ministers and, and senior government officials to, uh, to move things along really quickly, to invoke the Emergencies Act uh, much earlier than they did. I mean, Prime Minister Trudeau was asked in his testimony, when did you uh, first consider invoking the Emergencies Act? And he answered, from the very beginning. So it seems that there was uh, uh, an interest to find a terrorist group that would justify invoking the Emergencies Act. And, and during the testimony of, of many cabinet ministers and government officials, they would be pressed about, well, you know, uh, they would say, well, there was this, um, uh, you know, we had to do it because of the, uh, of the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge between Windsor, Ontario and Detroit. And then it would be pointed out, well, you know, uh, that got cl cleared up on the night of the 13th. It's the day before the, the Emergencies Act was invoked. And they say, well, well, there was, you know, these protests and we were concerned about the protesters were never going to leave in Ottawa. And then, and then the cross-examination would show that, well, actually there were discussions between the protesters and uh, city hall officials. Uh, and they were taking photos of over 100 uh, uh, vehicles that had left the city uh, by the morning, by the end of the, by noon on the 14th, and that by the 16th of, of February, 75% uh, of all the protest vehicles would have been gone from Ottawa. So you don't need to tow vehicles that have left the parking spaces. But um, and then they would say, well, well, there was these weapons in Coots. And so, you know, Coots ended up being kind of a, a default. Like if, if there's nothing behind door number one or door number two, behind door number three is, is the weapons in Coots and these guys who were arrested. So it's, it's, it's used in the media as, as a justification. And so I think that there's, it seems that there's interest on the part of the government and the Crown that, uh, that these four be found guilty, because if they're not, 
then uh, an awful lot of things start to unravel regarding the uh, uh, the justification of, of declaring Emergencies Act in the first place. Of course, uh, the mainstream media in Canada of late, being what it's been, might not choose to report <laughs> the story. If 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 it, you know, I don't know. Uh, I want to say one more thing that there's. You know, there was uh, one independent r journalist uh, named Jason Levine, who's in Alberta, who was at the pretrial motions the, w the last week of July in Lethbridge. Uh, one other person, I think, um, uh, who was an independent uh, reporter there for uh, a day, maybe a day and a half. But otherwise, no media at all. And isn't that interesting? I mean, this is a very serious case that hinges on uh, the justification to invoke the Emergencies Act, and yet the media in Canada are not interested in following this story. Well, thank you for covering it, and keep me posted via email if anything happens, and uh, I'm just in interested in these things that, that are really agent provocateur, uh, you know, government-sponsored terrorism, that they just, uh, they need to sustain their budget, so they've got to create the problem. Yeah, find uh, find me the crime, and I'll show you the man. Uh, you know, I mean, I I don't know uh, I don't know if they're agent provocateurs specifically, but certainly when you have undercover officers who are not recording things, who are trying to start conversations where they can find a little sound bite that, and then twist that sound bite that they heard from someone they're talking to, one of these four accused, to make it seem as if they're trying to do something, then then they think, okay, I've got enough that I can tell my superiors, you know, that that's, you know, something something uh, something nefarious in lines of ne the need to invoke the Emergencies Act is going on here in Coots. Uh, so, uh, you know, but meanwhile, I want to say, you know, you know, Chris Carbert, I mean, they're in a remand center. Chris Carbert's been lead, leading Bible study in the remand center. Jerry Morin is in another another uh, setting where he's leading inmates in yoga classes, and apparently one of the the guards told Jerry Mo Mo Morin after a number of weeks in custody, the guard said to him, "This is weird. We were expecting a lot of different behavior from you. We thought that you were a white supremacist, but but clear, clearly to the guard, this is like this is a joke, you know. So um, so so there they are uh, and remain in custody." Um, the exception to to the norm of of 99.99 percent of all people who are charged even with serious crimes in this country okay ray uh thanks so much for bringing it to my attention and uh then before we wrap up is there anything else you want to mention about this i didn't get to well i i think um you know there are i mean there are people who are 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 um following this closely you know people who are uh, the families, of course, and friends of, of, of family members. Um, there is a, a a Facebook website called Alberta Political Prisoners, and uh, and they they provide um, you know updates. If anybody wants to write to any of these four in their uh, in their different uh, uh, facilities, um, their names and uh, inmate number and. Uh, and uh, mailing address, variously in Calgary, Medicine Hat, or Lethbridge, are there in case uh, there are any of your listeners that are interested in in just uh, sending a word of uh, of concern or support. You know, because uh, you know, 
you know, whether, you know, anyone who's charged with a serious crime needs to be able to have their day in court to defend themselves. And if they're guilty, of course, you know, throw the book at them. But it's a terrible thing if you create uh, a situation where people who are innocent, as these four maintain they are, and they don't get to go to, to see a day in court. And that's, that's not justice the way it should be done in Canada in 2023. All right, thank you so much, Ray, and I'll make links to your article and some of the uh, the previous things we spoke about. Thanks. It's great to speak with you, Len. All right, good. And just keep me in the loop. Let me know if anything's up. <laughs> Will do. Thank you so much. Okay, good night. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Len Osanic. We have noted researcher... Author, director, Jim DiEugenio. Hello, Jim. Well, I'm, I'm not really a director, okay? <laughs> okay, I, I wrote the screenplays for those two documentaries, but Oliver Stone directed them. Okay. All right. But th- thanks anyway, Len. All right. It, 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 it's a thought that counts. The head of DiEugenio Studios. <laughs> uh, Patricia Baron, who you met yeah? up there in Quebec, she bought me... A one of those chairs, you know, that you see on a set with your name on it. Yeah, and, right. and it says and it says screenwriter on it. Oh, good. <laughs> I got one for my birthday one time. It just says Leno Sanic on the back, right? I'm not sure if it, but it's yeah, like it's a typical director. Well, you chair. actually made quite a few films. Yeah, short ones than that. Yeah, you know, you made how many have you made? Like six? Oh, I haven't counted, but probably about. A hundred rock videos. Okay. But, and but I don't... you actually made stories. About... Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the one little documentary um, uh, me and Susan made is about um, immigration to Hawaii. Right. I remember that. Yeah. And it's called The Footsteps of Regret. And yeah. It's, uh, it's really good. And I had one little drama I made called Laundry Day and mm-hmm. a few other, you know, a few other ones, you know, just, but um, I'm always working on something. Mm-hmm. Good. Good for you. All right. Now, let's go over to uh, Kennedy's and King. And we have a new article up, and you're going to interview the author of this article uh, probably next week or so. All right. And it's an overview of the Tippett case by a guy named Jack Myers, who's written another article for us on the Tippett case. Okay, and this is his second one. He kind of specializes in this. This is a long analysis. We broke up into three parts. The first part is the witnesses. The second one is the Oswald double and the purchase of the murder weapon. And then the third part is called the manipulation of Oswald. In my opinion, the strongest part of this is part two when he talks about whoever purchased the weapon because he makes a very, very good case that it wasn't Oswald, okay? And this was really, I think, a very serious problem with the Tippett case that was ignored by the first-generation critics. See, when... 
when I look back and okay, let's let's define who they were. Okay. Um Edward Epstein inquest. Uh Mark Lane rush to judgment. Sylvia Marr accessories after the fact. Okay, Tink Thompson, six seconds in Dallas. Richard Popkin, the second Oswald. All right. When we we kind of have a tendency, whenever you look back at something, to romanticize it or sentimentalize it. Okay. And by the way, and I'm not in any way, I'm please don't take this the wrong way. I'm not in any way saying that we should regret the work that those people did. No, not at all. They blew some very big holes in the Warren Commission volumes. I mean, who the heck was going to read 17,500 pages of stuff? You know, you know the media didn't do it, but you know people like Mark Lane and people like Sylvia Marr, they actually did read this stuff, all right? And they did some very good things, but I've always believed that there were some areas which they kind of dropped the ball a little bit, okay? One of them was Mexico City, okay? I think they more or less bought that story, okay? And um, the first guy to actually question it was Jim Garrison, all right? And I think another one is what Jack brings up here is the purchase of the so-called revolver that was used to go ahead and allegedly kill Tippett. As he makes the point here, and he's not the first. There's other people who have who have done a nice job on this, like John Armstrong. Okay, but he's really kind of hammered at home. You know, what is the evidence that Tippett ever went to Railway Express and picked up that handgun? All right, and he makes it very clear that there is little or none. You know, like I've I, I've always said before. There isn't even any evidence that the FBI went to Railway Express in Dallas, the place where Oswald was supposed to have picked up that handgun. Okay, I, I've never been able to find any evidence that the FBI went there to question, okay, the people who were working there. You know, I mean, obviously, if you're doing a murder investigation, you go to the place where the guy supposedly picked up the weapon, and you ask people there, all right, here's the picture. This is the guy who's supposed to pick up the weapon. When was he here? Who waited on him? Etc. All right. Okay, well, I've never been able to find any evidence that the FBI did that. And, you know, you have to, you know, you have to wonder – why wouldn't the FBI do that? I mean, that's a normal procedure. Why wouldn't they do that? Okay, and as usual in this case, 
you think, well, maybe they were afraid of what they'd find out. You know, I think that's a logical conclusion. All right, but anyway, this is uh, Jack's second article on the Tippett case. Uh, you're going to have him on, so he knows this very well. And this is an interesting article. Now, we have another one in the pipeline that's going to be up in the next couple of days. This one is by your friend Jeff Carter, who you worked on with your very notable production, 50 Reasons for 50 Years. Okay? A very notable achievement, all right, which is still worth seeing today. Oscar nominated. <laughs> it was? <laughs> well, I may be exaggerating that. <laughs> A guy named Oscar mentioned it. <laughs> so Jeff Carter uh, did a follow-up article to my uh, piece on Fletcher Prouty versus the ARB. And he went even further with Tim Ray and Christopher Barger of the ARB and their hatchet job on Fletcher Prouty. Okay, and that'll be up. Uh, you know, I, I really – you really wonder about some certain people in the critical community, okay, that – they would accept what the review board did in that case. And thank God for people like Doug Horn, who was actually there, okay, and refused to participate in it. But then when I interviewed him, he told me about who Tim Ray really was, okay? You know, and you have to wonder, you know, why would a guy like that even want to be on the ARB. Okay. You really, really wonder, you know, I'm not going to make any assumption, but I think it's a, it's a question for all of us to ponder, you know, and again, you know, I, like I said, we have a tendency, a natural tendency uh, to, look back at things in a, in a positive way when, you know, the ARB, as I think, you know, this, don't you? Four out of the five people are dead. This is why Thunheim is the guy who's trotted out all the time because everybody else has passed away. All right. And so when you look back at this and we tried to address this in the film, you know, um, when I think Oliver asked Thunheim, you know, should it have been an open-ended operation? You know, and when you look at this, I mean, Len, I mean, this is 2023. The ARB closed its doors in 1998. Okay. So we're talking a quarter century. All right. And we still don't have everything. You know, so you really have to wonder what, what the heck happened. You know, and I think some of the things, you know, were that 
once the big wave hit, you know, with the congressional hearings and everything, um, as Mark Adamchick and Andrew Eiler pointed out in their excellent article, okay, um, the Biden CIA attempt to serve Congress authority over JFK records, that excellent, which, by the way, if you haven't read that, you, you really should, okay, um, there was no follow-up, as there should have been, because in the act it says that the committees of Congress, the governing committees of Congress, were supposed to perform a periodic review. Well, as Mark and Andrew pointed out, if there was a periodic review, it was very well hidden because nobody knows anything about it. Well, the fact they don't want to do it underscores who's behind this. And the fact that Biden has now tried to shut the door in the whole thing. And, you know, 25 years later, they were supposed to release everything. And then three years, another two years. And then finally, the the insult is Biden dropping everything. Um, average citizens uh, like Mark, Larry Schnaff are, are trying to take the government to court for just promising to do what they said they were going to do. Right. And that's the fraud of it. And I think what this article points out is that people who want to believe Posner or the McAdams or, or Bugliosi, the Warren Commission, they're clinging to this. And anyone who says something otherwise, uh, there's kind of a, a character assassination. Now, um, Fletcher Prouty had mentioned, and it's, it's a recorded you know, a couple of times, um, various places, that when he went to speak in 1978, he saw George Joannides on the panel. Right. And he said, oh, well, if it's that far gone, there's no sense me presenting anything because it's, um, it's, the whole thing is sunk from within. I mm-hmm. mean, they don't know how, how badly they've been infiltrated. Mm-hmm. Right. So now that people have discovered that George Joannides and just what his role was to obfuscate everything, to keep researchers spinning their wheels, uh, when he went back in 1992, uh, no, it was after 1997. Yeah, 90, 96, yeah, 97, 96, um, whatever the date is to testify. He got the same impression. And by the way, I, I mean, I've told you this. He phoned me that day when he came back. He goes, Len, I was just there at the board and it's the same deal you yes. recognize the same smell and mm-hmm. um he he just told me that and right. um so then when people say well you know fletcher wasn't forthcoming and this and that you know it's like you don't realize what you're up against it's this, like i've mentioned this anecdote like the boy scouts knocking on the hell's angels clubhouse door saying what's going on in there i mm-hmm. mean so um the thing is, I think what Jeff Carter was doing, he was trying to level the field with a lot of people, trying to to insinuate that, that, that the problems are not on the Warren Commission to support their thing. It's like people like Fletcher Prouty or other people that have shown uh, cracks or failings in it, you know? And by the way, I, I, I let me add something about this. One of the people I tried to get for film, the film was Jeremy Gunn. And he was the, for the most part, the chief counsel of the ARB for a number of years. And he, of course, anybody who's seen the film knows that he didn't show up. And I was very disappointed to see that Jeremy Gunn went along with this thing. 
you know, as, as you as you'll see in Jeff Carter's upcoming article. OK, Jeremy Gunn was an integral part of this attempt to assassinate Fletcher Prouty, which is very discouraging because for the simple matter that Jeremy Gunn was a number two guy. Well, uh, that just underscores how much the cover up is in there. So it's only well, well, discouraging. Wait, wait. I, 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 I wouldn't <laughs> see what I believe they were trying to do when what I believe they were trying to do. If they thought that if we get Fletcher Prouty, we can assassinate Oliver Stone. OK, because Oliver Stone stood by Fletcher Prouty through the whole thing. If you remember when people like Robert Sam Anson and Epstein, et cetera, and all these other people were trying to assassinate Fletcher Prouty, you know, Oliver Stone. And, and you have to remember back to 91 because the wave of flack that attacked this movie was unprecedented in the history of cinema. I can't recall anything like this ever happening. And Robert Sam Anson started the open season on Fletcher Prouty with his article in Esquire. Well, Oliver, this is what's so admirable about Oliver. If you weren't around back then, and this was quite a long time ago, of course, you know, this is like 30 years ago. I was around then. You were around then. Oliver replied to every single one of those attacks, every single one of them he replied to. And when they didn't want him to reply, like in the Washington Post, Oliver threatened to buy an ad. Okay, if you're not going to let me reply, then I'm going to buy an ad. And I don't care how much it costs. All right? And so they had to have him reply. Well, in the case of Robert Sam Anson and his attack on Fletcher Prouty, Oliver really went after him. Okay? His words, and I think Jeff has it in his article. You know, words of the effect, I'll take Fletcher Prouty any day of the week over Robert Sam Anson. Okay? So, and so that's what I think the strategy was. That if we can get Fletcher Prouty, we'll we'll get, we'll bring down Oliver Stone. That's what I think it was all about. Okay. Right, but but considering that if it's higher than that, they want to they want to bring down anyone trying to uncover the truth. Yeah, I, I I agree. People like see, like I said, I don't understand, you know, what Tim Ray was doing on that thing. Right. I mean, well, it's uncomfortable to people to think that it was that crooked, right? And the well, only I mean, how could they? You well, know. they did. <laughs> you know, that's what well, I'm trying to drive home. Because well, see, I hope you understand that they did not want Doug Horn on the thing because they said he's going to try and solve the case. OK, but yet they didn't want Doug Horn, but they accepted Tim Ray. You know, I mean, that's that's really, really bizarre. And by the way, if, if you don't understand what I'm talking about in Doug Horn's book inside the ARB. In the first volume, there's a very interesting chapter, about 15 pages long, called The Culture of the ARB. And when I reviewed the book, I said, I wish this would have gone on for twice as many pages. I think he should have wrote 30 pages on this because it was so informative because he was right there. So he could describe that. You know, they, they, they refused to put up a picture of John Kennedy in the entire office. I mean, that's just bizarre to me. Okay, if 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 the ARB was not about John Kennedy, what was it about? You know. <laughs> well, the thing is, you have to listen to uh, Doug Horn just re recount and reveal how many people, how many top people, were Warren Commission supporters behind the right. back and of everyone. That's, right. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. This is one of the most bizarre things about the review board. Doug said, off the top of my head, 
I would say two thirds of them. You know, two thirds. Now, if that's not by accident, the only thing I just, you know, tell researchers is, you know, like when you say, well, I'm disappointed to find this out, or there might be other people we find out that are uh, not who we thought they were. And um, you, you just look back, and if it, if it was a different case, if you were studying, I don't know, gravity or anything, you'd say, well, these professors, they should have never been on this council because uh, they're just biased. And any time House Select Committee and, uh, I mean, especially the beginning of the HSCA, right? Right? And we have... No, the beginning of the HSCA, the beginning was good. No, no, but they fired what's-his-name there, right? Yeah, right. Imagine that, right? Like, almost got ran out of town. And that's because he was going to do a good job. And he was going to ask for everyone in the CIA's records, holiday records. They wanted to know who was on duty, who was off and all that. And they, they said, we're not having this. And so they applied their pressure. But I'm but the point I'm trying to make is that from the very beginning, it's like uh, the old story about, you know, getting the fox to investigate who raided the hen house. They, mm-hmm. There was never going to be, I mean, from yourself and Oliver Stone, your latest four-hour, you know, that is power-packed with real investigative journalism. And yes. every time you look at ARB or um, House Select or, you know, the other ones, you, you're kind of let down and you go, geez, th- you know, this doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if you realize, no, they were behind it. They are covering up, and I'll say today, just they're covering well, up you, Alan Dulles and that. They're you, covering you, that you, up. You, you know this, you know, at, because Dan Hardway said it on your show. He said... Him and Ed Lopez were making really good progress on Mexico City. Then all of a sudden they brought in Joe Anitas. And suddenly we weren't getting our requests back in any reasonable time. And then we were getting them back with pages missing. You know, and they, they complained to Blakey about it. And Blakey now regrets the fact, you know, that he did not scream about this at the time. All right. And so and so that's that's what happened. They they brought in this ringer, Joe Anita. And by the way. You know that they had this agreement that nobody who was active in 1963 and nobody who dealt with the Kennedy case had could be a liaison. Well, when they brought in Joanides, Blakey actually called Joanides and he asked him and he said, no. I mean, can you believe this? I mean, this is how this is how bad this is how bad the CIA is on the JFK case. You know, and so then or we, the other way is how good they are at covering it up. Yes, yes. And so then you get Tim Ray, who was a military officer, you know, and he wants to bring in Fletcher Prouty. You know, we can get Fletcher, we can get Oliver. Okay, but Jeff did a very nice job on this. Okay. Well, so. early on, I saw the correspondence, the, the intercorrespondence. And they were just talking about how they were going to try to sabotage, right. make these statements, right. uh, will make them look bad. But they're right. planning that. They're not planning an yes. honest investigation. Yes. So yes. that's why I kind of am a little more adamant about, you know, you shouldn't be disappointed. You, you We should be thinking about this as a fraud and investigate the fraud and, and reveal the fraud because, uh, you know, it's 60 do, do, years later. Do you believe that they actually said that there was no military intelligence reinforcements to the Secret Service. I couldn't believe they said that. But that's how determined they were to get Fletcher Prouty. All you have to do is go to Vince Palomero's site, 
And you will see that in various instances, like he's got like three or four of them on his website, you will see military intelligence backup in certain cities that Kennedy visited in 62 and 63. So what were these guys thinking of? Well, I'll tell you what they were. They were trying to cover it up. They were working on they were on the job, on the payroll, and they weren't going after just Fletcher. There was a couple of uh, – was it um, was it Joel Cabasis? What was There was another couple of people. They wanted to get them to change their testimony or obfuscate the whole thing, just make the whole thing unclear. And, um, and then if you read between the lines, they say, well, the guy is admitting he did get this phone call and there were stand-down orders. And the stand-down orders for people that normally would be there for presidential protection. Yeah. So now you See, can the thing say- is, the thing is that was that was so screwy um, because in the article I wrote, okay, then and and with your help, okay, and and Larry Hancock's help, okay, that that was just that was just full of baloney, and and you actually you actually saw the evidence at Fletcher's house, right? Didn't you see the notepad? Yeah, I had that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I had. Yeah. In fact, right. Didn't I email you a copy of it, a fax? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, right. 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 And then and then we produced three or four other witnesses. Yeah. You know, who who attested to pretty much the same thing, you know. So, you know, they, they, this was just, you know, I'm so disappointed in Jeremy Gunn that he did that. He sponsored this. Yeah. That he was in on. And by the way, I have to say this, you know, because when I was trying to get him, he's over in Africa. He teaches at, I think, the University of Morocco or something like that over in Africa. And when I was trying to get him to come over or to be on the program, I actually tried to get him before I even signed my contract, okay? Because I re- that's how much I wanted him on the program. Because I don't think Jeremy has done any film. The only thing he ever did that I saw was this talk he did up in New England, okay, around the uh, 50th anniversary. That's on YouTube. So I thought, okay, this will be his first documentary appearance, all right? But he, he just wouldn't. And then when I told him that Oliver Stone was going to direct it, this was like my second phone call with him or my second email exchange with him. You know, he brought up this thing with Fletcher Prouty. So that's how much of a backer of this that Jeremy Gunn was, all right? Then, of course, what's so strange about this is that then Tim Ray leaves. He leaves. And then, thank God, Doug Horn took his place. Okay, and Doug Horn did all this very good work, you know, because he's the guy who got Northwoods, okay, and then he's the guy who got the uh, May 1963 SecDef conference. Those incredible uh, records. You know, Doug thinks Northwoods was their scoop. I think the May 63 SEC death conference was their scoop because I believe I believe that is the evidence that certifies that Kennedy was getting out of Vietnam. There, I don't think there's any ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, and that even convinced the New York Times that Kennedy was getting out of Vietnam, <laughs> okay? You know, so Doug Horn took his place and and you really have to wonder, Lynn, you really have to wonder if Doug Horn would have been there from the beginning and Tim Ray would not have been there. What maybe the ARB would have been a real success. You know, you really have to wonder. 
you know. So anyway, anyway, so this is an article that's upcoming. Well, at, just one last point on this. Can I ask you sure. why you're disappointed? Is it that you thought that maybe Tim Ray was more on the side of the truth than he ends up being? When I, the question I'm asking is what could the ARB have been if Tim Ray would have never been there and Doug Horn would have had his position from the start? Okay, that's what I'm saying. I know, but maybe there is a reason that that happened. Well, that's, you know, I, I wish I could talk to David Marwell about this, okay? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you well. Know, I, really, I really wish I could. He was the, David Marwell was the executive director. He was a guy who was above Jeremy Gunn. And then you had the five uh, ARB members, okay? But they, they were not, they would come in once a month, okay? You know, and then they would meet with Marwell and Gunn. But the guy really running it at the beginning as a day-to-day operation was Marwell, okay, and then there was a gun below him. But if Doug Horn's book, those 15 pages, he kind of makes it clear that Marwell was very skeptical about there being any conspiracy in the JFK case. Exactly. My point is that I think it was rotten, uh, and I think that, sorry to say that you as a few of these people were still alive and you got to grill them or ask them, will you take part in your documentary and they turn you down, then you'll say, holy shit, they were all crooked. Well, let, 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 to be fair, to be fair, Jeremy Gunn did a speech at Stanford in, I believe, 1998 or 97, and we exerted it for Probe magazine because Gary Aguilar taped the speech, all right? And I think the title is Jeremy Gunn at Stanford. And I think you can read it. You can, if you go through Google, you know, or DuckDuckGo, go. okay, you can, you can find it. And that speech isn't bad. It's not as good as it, I wish it would have been. Yeah, I know. But, but it's not bad. But, he, but this is what he says that, that gives me, I, I just want to be fair to the guy. He said words of the, because he was an attorney. All right, and he said that, I would rather be defending Oswald than prosecuting him. And he did send me, Jeremy Gunn sent me, because he knew about my interest in Garrison and New Orleans. He sent me excerpts from the so-called Brylab tapes, which were supposed to show that somehow Marcello was in on a plot. And he sent me certain pages which showed, no, that that's simply not true. And John Volz had already told me about this because John Volz was the attorney, the U.S. attorney, who prosecuted the Marcello case. And when I interviewed him down in New Orleans, uh, he told me that he actually had a guy go through all the, the undercover tapes they had on, on Marcello. And he said, no, there's, there's nothing in there where he admits it. But Jeremy actually sent me the excerpts. Okay, so to be fair to him, okay, um, I think Jeremy, well, and you have to see, you have to understand, if it wasn't for Jeremy Gunn, Doug Horn would have never been allowed to do what he did. And I think one of the most important things about the ARB, maybe from a forensic stance, it was the most important thing, was Doug Horn's two brain examination essay. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. D- Doug Horn wrote a revolutionary essay based on all the interviews they did and the new evidence they extracted. 
okay, in which he argued that there was not one brain examination, that there were two separate events, okay? And then this, that essay is what really started me on the trail to understanding that the brain illustrations in evidence not only are not John F. Kennedy's brain, they can't be John F. Kennedy's brain. And that is one of the things that I wanted to put forward in the documentary, that there's so much evidence today that says that those illustrations in the House Select Committee showing a 1,500-gram brain, those are fraudulent. They almost have to be fraudulent. They cannot be Kennedy's. And, and we made this a big part of the documentary. And this is why I wanted uh, Mike Chesser, uh, because he's a neurologist in Arkansas. Okay, This is why I wanted him to be one of our prime witnesses on that, on that whole issue. So, so anyway. Well, get, you know, ahead, I just... You, you um, want to top it off? Yeah, I'm going to say that, frankly, I'm tired of being fair to these guys. But, you know, <laughs> to, think, to think what you or Thurl Wecht would have done. That's pretty funny, Len. I'm tired of being fair to these guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, did you... Uh, let's, for instance, you bring up Jeremy Gunn. Wasn't he on uh, the Oprah show with... with Marina Oswald, and wasn't no, Marina no, Oswald? No, 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 no. That oh. was Tunheim. Yeah, okay, was... right. Marina Oswald was telling. She said, "You're not doing an honest investigation." Right. She and he's going, Tunheim. right. But what she was saying, in a nutshell, was, "You're not doing a good job. You're doing the bare minimum." And like you're saying, thank God Doug Horn has come out with some stuff, but they did the bare minimum to try to pacify the American public. And then uh, she said, why haven't you released his tax records? Why haven't you? And he, you know, he hummed and hawed. You know, it was like, you know, it just underscored that even uh, Marina Oswald was saying, you guys aren't doing a good job. You're doing something. But if anybody really, uh, you know, called you on the carpet and said, what the hell are you guys doing? You're getting, you're getting some money. You're doing nothing. You're sending, and then you're hiring people to, to spin a disinformation oh, and, and, campaign. And by, and by the way, uh, that's on YouTube, isn't it? I'm pretty sure that's on YouTube. Yeah, probably. But I remember watching it live and I remember just going, holy mm. shit, she's telling him off. Yeah. If, if anybody wants to see that, like go to one of these, uh, go to one of these uh, explorers, you know, DuckDuckGoGo or, or Google and just Google that. Marina Oswald, John Tunheim on Oprah Winfrey, and you can see it for yourself. You know? And by the way, the, the reason I'm mentioning DuckDuckGo, you, you know what it is, right? Yeah, it's a search engine. Right. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning it, because I find myself using it more and more. Yeah. Because I find stuff there that I can't find on Google. Okay. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Google's you know? really, when we, when we, thank goodness for, and some people aren't going to like this, but thank goodness for, uh, um, Elon Musk that he's revealing sorts of stuff and then now it's coming out about Facebook and all, all sorts of things the just government offices set up there and anyway I believe it's just to correct you I think it's just DuckDuckGo oh okay all right and uh, but regardless I mean people will find that it will make a link to it yeah so many things are just ghosted you know uh, shadow band is another term for it. You, like you say, you search for something, you can't find it. And you could go to some of these other smaller search engines and then you find it. Well, I don't want to get into it, but I remember McAdams used to pay. You could pay a penny or a hundredth of a cent or whatever to be listed higher than anybody else. So you, you could influence 
search results by offering money or paying money to them to have your results. So if you searched for Fletcher Prouty, you wouldn't find the Fletcher Prouty reference site first. You'd find McAdams site or other sites, right? Yeah, and right. Uh, it's just it's Wikipedia is the same thing. It's just well, you you a know disgrace. what the guy who the guy who co-founded Wikipedia, yeah, he came out and admitted, yeah. You saw that, didn't you? Yeah, uh, I know. I, but I've known it for years. We've all known it. And, well, if we had to fight and all the all the things I went through for years, and I just finally abandoned it. Okay, there, I got three letters here. Good, okay, good. Let's get July to that. July the 26th, Troy Wiggins, one of our most loyal readers, he listed some of the questions that he relayed to me. And I think he agreed with most of my answers here. Okay, and uh, like, for example, do I think Oswald went to Mexico City? And I said, I don't think so. Did Oswald fire a weapon on 11-22-63? And no, I don't believe he did. Uh, were there medical alterations on JFK's body? I'm on the fence about that. Were the backyard photos false? I believe they were. And so we went. he went through some of these. And the only one I don't think I answered, who was the one person or researcher that influenced you the most? That's a tough question. Um, I would probably say, I can't limit it to one person, but I would probably say Jim Garrison, okay, and Sylvia Marr. Yeah, great answer. As much as they were opposed to each other, you know, I, I would say those, because Sylvia Marr, demolished the Warren Commission, one of the first people to really demolish it. But Jim Garrison, what he did, he showed me that there was an alternative scenario for what really happened. Okay, and so that's why I would put him up there. Okay. Especially when you go through the the Garrison papers now and you see, my God, look at all the stuff he was into. Yes. Yes. And I I still get people asking me for that. And what I'm happy Paul to... Blow has done with that is, is really something. Yeah. And I think there's more coming down the pike. So if anybody's interested in New Orleans, just ask Len for those set of documents. Yeah. All right. July 31st, Phil, Phil D'Agosto. A question and a comment for you to reply on Black Op Radio. I would like to hear your opinion on the heated debates currently taking place at the Education Forum regarding Alborelli's book, Who in Dallas? Some of the material that's been presented is certainly intriguing, but the Lafitte date book could easily turn out to be a forgery. Also, the focus on Jean Soutre gives me pause. I thought Larry Hancock had debunked that one. Is he now a credible suspect again? On the JFK files, I'm convinced that the establishment, which much rather parade a live alien from Area 51, before joint session of Congress, then released the JFK files. I agree with the second one. Okay, <laughs> I agree with that. All right. As far as the debate about Alberelli and everything, I'm I'm very leery to get into that because there's been so many of these things that have turned out to be false that the JFK community actually and i can name some of these books like appointment in dallas like regicide okay um and they turned out to be you know like farewell america they turned out to be 
let's say, compromised. All right. And so unless and until this is turned out to be forensically bulletproof, okay, I'm I'm not going to go ahead and get into that debate. Um, Greg Dudna, who is on the EF, brought up some very interesting points about the book. Okay. All right. And so did Greg Parker over at his website. Okay. Reopen the Kennedy case. So if you want to read some differing views on that, those are two people you can talk to. All right. Okay. Now, this is August the 9th. This is Rob Hakeman, Shrewsbury, England. Hi, Jim and Lynn. I've been listening to Black Op Radio for about 15 years now. It, have you really been on that long, Lynn? My God. Jim! <laughs> 24 years! Oh, my God, Lynn. It Jesus, started in the year 2000. Oh, my God. 24 seasons. Okay, so you started this when you were a young whippersnapper, huh? Okay. <laughs> All right. It's a great show, and I thank you both for it. I have recently joined in some JFK assassination debates on Quora. Lone Nut Warren Commission supporters are plentiful. They like to state that Bugliosi is the final word on the subject, though I doubt they have <laughs> book. All right. God. They employ tactics of being rude and mocking conspiracy theorists whilst ignoring the evidence put forward. Their persistence amazes me. Recently, a retired teacher, Cecilia Rankin, I asked her if she was related to J. Lee Rankin, who seemed well-read, stated that you cannot trust the rear head wound testimony of Jackie Kennedy, Clint Hill, Robert McClellan, Charles Crenshaw, Seibert, and O'Neill, as they are not medically trained. McClellan and Crenshaw were not medically trained? As if you need to... to be to identify a big hole in the back of the head. It seems as though biased media coverage, well-promoted books from Bugliosi and Posner, and poor history channel programs from people such as Max Holland are having an effect. Do you think there is a coordinated effort to control forums, influence less well-informed people, and shut down debate? I know for a fact that Steve Rowe, who is one of the most vociferous, uh, strident defenders, of the official story is on Quora. He uses a different name. Um, I don't Andrew Jackson or something like that. Okay, and I've answered him a couple of times. All right, uh, and I think uh, Litwin is also on Quora. So yes, there's there's definitely. I believe there's been a very conscious effort. Okay, to uh, discredit evidentiary points. You know, um, you know. I, I mean, look. As Gary Aguilar found out, and as we placed in the film, this idea that there were two differing opinions about the hole in the back of JFK's head is utterly false, and the only reason it survived is because the House Select Committee on Assassinations lied about it. Okay. And there's no two ways of saying this. They lied about it, all right? They said that as opposed to the people at Parkland who only saw the body for 20 minutes, the witnesses at Bethesda disagreed. Well, that wasn't true. 
And so Gary Aguilar put together, and he's a doctor, uh, something like 42 witnesses. Okay, and we showed this, we talked about this in the film. And not only did they say that there was this hole in the back of Kennedy's head, they drew pictures of it. They drew illustrations of it. And many of these people were medically qualified to testify in court. Okay? So the idea that somehow there weren't enough medically qualified experts to testify about this in a court of law, that's just balderdash. You know, I, I would say like 25 of them, okay, had the medical qualifications to testify about this in court, you know. And then if you put this together with what I just mentioned earlier, the fact that the pictures of JFK's brain are almost inherently fraudulent, can you imagine producing that kind of evidence in a court of law? See, because one of the things about legal procedure is that if you can prove forgery or fraud in the prosecution's case, you can get their case thrown out. Okay? And you can look this up if you don't believe me. All right? And as far as John Stringer goes, the guy who took the pictures that night, okay, or at least one of them, because I think Robert Newson took another set, all right, John Stringer testified under oath before the ARB that, no, I, I didn't take those pictures. That's not my kind of film, and that's not my kind of film process. Anyone can look this up. And I put it in the book of JFK Revisited. If an illustration or a picture is to be submitted to the court, it has to be certified by the person who either took the picture or drew the illustration. If it is not so certified, then it cannot be admitted. All right? It's that simple. So whoever this person is on Quora, I have a hard time believing there's a Cecilia Rankin. You know, it's probably one of these phony names that these guys use. Okay. Is up a tree on this issue. This would be if there would have been a real trial of Oswald, which there was not. Okay. The Warren Commission was anything but a real trial. This would have blown up their case right then and there. All right. Okay, Len. Those are the three questions. We're all caught up. Very good. Yeah, and, uh, you know, all I can do is give advice and say, just stop arguing with these people that are flat earthers. You know, if they're supporting <laughs> the Warren Commission, if they're quoting Bugliosi or whoever the guy said he was an authority, right? Uh, it's crazy. It, it's just crazy. And uh, I, I would have thought anybody who reads my book, how could you possibly believe uh, Bugliosi. And then we have this five-part essay by uh, Martin Hay on the website. Just post that, okay, criticizing Posner. Well, it doesn't make sense unless some of these guys are phony names and uh, and uh, they're paid to be there. And we're going to find out. Ce Cecilia Rankin? 
Well, just, yeah. you know, I'm just saying that uh, I would not be surprised to find out that, you know, you hear about um, there's some kind of Russian troll farm. I wouldn't be surprised mm. to find out that there's a CIA troll farm where the, those guys sit there all day, come in at eight hours a shift and uh, do like a Gary Mack, just sit there and throw up on the American people. Okay, Len. <laughs> all right, Jim. Have a good night, buddy. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for uh, taking time tonight. Sure. All right. Good night. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another segment of Black Op Radio. In this episode, we are speaking to author, poet, Jeannie Dean. Hello, Jeannie. Hi. Good to be here, Len. Great. You have a book of poetry, and I'm sure you have a lot of other stuff to talk about, but you sent this to me. Uh, I'm ashamed to say quite a while ago, maybe nine months ago, whatever, and I've been meaning to get through it, and I get halfway through it, and I, you know, I pick it up, I read a couple, and then I put, I go back to what I'm doing, but I wanted to make sure that people knew about this book, and I wanted to really help promote it. It's called "The Whole World Stopped: An LG for John F. Kennedy and the American Dream." There are poems by Jeannie S. Dean. So, thank you for writing this. It's quite a it's it's just interesting. It's a book of poetry, thoughts on the assassination, and then there's seems like there's just little short uh, descriptions. Uh, um, it, you know, for anyone who is interested in the assassination, this is something that they will really uh, enjoy because it's it's something that you know you kind of have to know about the assassination. But once you do, you realize how relevant uh, all these are. So first of all, I just was going to ask you, what got you interested in the assassination and then to write about it? Yes, and I want to say, too, that I am thrilled to be on your program. I value your work. Um, I, I read the Fletcher Prouty books, and it influenced me greatly. And I also really loved what you did with for the 50 Reasons at the 50th anniversary. I thought that was that was top shelf, and so I'm I'm very glad that you want to include include my work in the pantheon of JFK <laughs> research. Yeah, um, well, thank I, you, and it, it's it's yeah. worthwhile, and it could be that um, a book of poetry isn't everyone's cup of tea, but I think people who have an interest in the JFK assassination, I mean, it reminds me of you know that um, great song, um, "Murder Most Foul" by by Bob Dylan, and and you listen to his lyrics, and they're just almost poetry, and then they really move you, and mm-hmm. uh, that's the kind of thing with um, uh, some of your poems, and I'll, maybe I'll get you to read some selected ones as well, but they're, you know, if you know the topic, this is something that, you know, should touch you, and uh, yeah. so what was it about I, the assassination that, that, that caught your eye, that... Um, uh-huh. piqued your interest. Well, how about this? That's a really important question, and I thought it might be good, though, to just say a few things about the poetry matter itself. And, and like, for me, poetry is a way to get to the heart of the matter, and it, it's more direct. And so it, it can be kind of a composite or a compressed way of in, imparting information along with feeling, perhaps. And and that um, a lot of the, my approach with the poetry is I use many different forms. Uh, some of the poetry is narrative. Um, 
some of it, um, quite a bit of it is didactic, which means it's a, it's controversial. It's, it's, it's arguing points. And some of it is in, in various forms like sonnets and ballads, song lyrics. And um, I've even had some visual collages and, and all of it uh, going through many of the significant topics that many of, that most of us who looked at the JFK assassination material have encountered, like the magic bullet and the multiple Oswalds and who was Ruby and, and what happened with Officer Tippett and the anomalies of the whole assassination and the cover-up. And, and, and then there's a couple of poems in there that would maybe be like the on the order of Emile Zola's uh, Jacques and um, and that comes. You asked me where this came from, and I would say part of it is is this Irish rebellion spirit that uh, I'm very proud to have that ancestry, and I, I really uh, do identify with the Irish and Kennedy's background as well. In fact, one of the things that I came to as I was writing these poems and evolved through about probably. I don't know, uh, maybe 12, 15 years. It started out with the first poem called Abortion of the American Dream, which is definitely an accused poem, and I was probably 18, 19 when I wrote uh, wrote it. But that Kennedy rightly deserves a proper Irish ballad, being our most prominent American fallen Irish son. And and I I took a a stab at that. I rewrote a, a very famous Irish ballad called Spansel Hill. And I'm um, putting this out to your listeners that if um, if we can find somebody to produce the song and sing it in a, in a right, in a right way, that it would be very good to get it into the, the, the sound sphere, um, into public familiarity. And um, my title for it is the John, John F. Kennedy song or the sad grassy knoll. And so we'll just, we can save that for the end um, um, for your listeners. And so to get back to your question, how did I get into the Kennedy material? Um, I was a child of uh, eight, just turned nine um, when the assassination happened. And um, I, had an ex- I had an experience where I, at, at five and uh, six during the election, I was keenly fascinated with the election. And um, one of my poems is, is how I'd run up to the, te- the TV when John Kennedy was on speaking, and I'd like go and touch it. And he got my attention, even as a five-year-old, you know, child. And, and I was um, um, from a precocious family and a lot of writers. And, and so uh, involved with even having some sense of news at, at a young age. And, and when the assassination happened, I read every inch of the newspaper. And as I watched the events unfold and the assess, uh, the, the murder or the killing or the presumed killing of, of Lee Harvey Oswald on Sunday, on November 25th, I couldn't believe it. And I started to disbelieve and I felt I was being fed a script at, at uh, the ripe age of eight or nine years old. And um, so that's something we lived with. And of course, the, out of Kennedy's assassination came the escalation of the Vietnam War. And um, all those eight, 10, 12-year-olds grew up to, you know, five, 
10 years later to be looking at the carnage of the Vietnam War. And, um, and I saw friends go, I saw people come back as heroin addicts and lost souls. And um, so that led me to write the first poem, Abortion of the American Dream. You want to hear a few lines from it? Sure, go ahead. Okay, let's see. I got to get to the right page now. So we have some dead space. Speaking of dead space, I, I liked your show with um, Oliver Stone, and I guess I, I have the honor of being bumped by him. And um, he was promoting nuclear energy. And I found that very interesting because in July of the Wall Street Journal, there was an article that caught my attention. That it was I was telling everybody about it. And it's that um, Sam Altman, the owner of OpenAI, Microsoft's AI company, was uh, getting headlines because they were buying nuclear power companies, many, many nuclear power. And the bottom line is, and the bottom line is that AI is going to be putting intense demands on our energy use, and so. Uh, these mini uh, um, nuclear units will become the order of the day. And another reason to to promote it, Oliver. <laughs> so I'm still looking for that page number. And here we go, 108. It's a monster piece of a poem. So um, about 10 minutes. It's the real dirge, but uh, we can hear a few lines. And it's in three parts. Part one is heroes. The assassination of John Kennedy was an abortion of the great American dream. Mom, baseball, apple pie, Ms. Liberty, and Uncle Sam, a chicken in every pot, a car in every lot, were laid to waste that day. The dream was wrenched from the nation. The whole world stopped in grieving awe. Miss Liberty went first, murdered on a sultry day in August 1962. The news blasted forth from the dash of an old Chevy two-door pickup. It wasn't long and he was gone at high noon in a Texas town, gunned down in cold blood. The cowards shot him in the back, front, and side. It was noon on Friday, November 22nd, 1963, when they killed the dream in Dallas and murdered the president, John F. Kennedy. America turned over then in her dream, shook wide awake to a nightmare as the country wept in a crying rain that poured down over the entire nation. And the last part has a memorable line. Five years later in 1968, was it any surprise? The cries of protest, anger, and rage. The new generation had now come of age. Hell no, we won't go. For their innocent eyes had seen the dream aborted for their country. They could not believe what they saw on their TV. The innocent anger of the children of the new generation had grown to power. So that's uh, some of the the opening the the signature salvo of this book, and um, so I'll stop for a moment. <laughs> sure, is it safe to say then that you feel that um, the 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 loss of the American dream uh, and the Vietnam War uh, and and as I guess the Joint Chiefs of Staff and and LBJ, this is. Uh, uh, the focal point of, uh, if you look back at America, where did it all go wrong? It was from November twenty second. Yes, I would. I would agree. I. I would. I am of that camp. And 
it's more complicated. I mean, some of, I mean, we're looking at 60 years now and into younger generations, the Vietnam War is, 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 is um, probably as obscure as Napoleon, you know, and, um, and have we completely lost the American dream? Well, that's, de- that, I think that could be debated in the throes of the sixties. It, 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 uh, there was so much uh, diplomacy with a gun. You know, there were so many assassinations. It, it, it was, it was pretty harrowing to look at all that. And um, in terms of say being a dream for the world, I, I think in many respects, we're still a refuge for uh, nations facing uh, autocracies. And as, as much as we have our own, you know, conspiracies in our own, Problem. Now, so, now yeah. you gave us a little background uh, about the assassination. Is there something about the crime itself? And I'm going to get at maybe more of the cover-up, the Warren Commission, that spurred you on to write about, you know, saying that uh, if this was a lone Marxist, the just one guy that shot the president, that would be that. But there's something more foul afoot here. Is there something about the aftermath that caught your attention? Well, part two of my book is um, called the the cover up, and um, I remember in the uh, I, geez, I think it's the seventies <laughs> when the Zapruder film came out, and somebody I know well was involved in in individually um, presenting that locally because it, um, it, it was quite a big deal to, to see that and how devastating it was. And and that absolutely reinforced the idea of what a crime this was, and, and how there was no justice, there there was no um, meaningful investigation, and and um, you know, and again, the, there's a lot of debate about the authenticity of it, and and that the the film itself has been perhaps altered, and yet at the same time, it it I still cannot see it without feeling just you know, just deep sorrow. And, um, um, I think, um, I could maybe throw a poem or two at that conspiracy. Um, like part of, part of what my book presents is all these people who knew about it beforehand. And, um, Right. Now, just before we get too far into it, do you have a website or where is your book available? Yes, I have a Facebook page called Remember JFK. Uh, in the 50th, we did quite a bit. and we, There was a, a core group of people who were volunteers and we did uh, a curated exhibit at Milwaukee's uh, Irish Fest, for example. And every year I do an event in Milwaukee. I um, started out in 1988. And um, I've been doing something, even, some, some years it was private, um, but I've always done some sort of event. And um, many times over the years, I had musicians um, either write new, new content. And, and there's about 50 songs I've, I've curated that are uh, referred to Kennedy, and there may be more since I stopped doing that. And um, so I would do an art-related event and a tribute and in the last uh, decade or so, I've um, transitioned to doing more lectures and on different themes. Like I've, I did a lecture on the three women who, who um, were witnesses, Dorothy Kilgallen, 
um, Florence Pritchard and Mary Meyer, who died. I did a piece on John Kennedy's very good friend and uh, interesting relationship with Lem Billings. Last year, I did a one on Oswald and the CIA. And so every year, I've, I've been doing themed research topics. Um, another year, I did one on Robert Kennedy and, and the assassination of Bobby. And um, But I don't have a web space. And the book is available at Amazon um, um, or through through me directly. Okay, I'll make a link to one. that, and I'll find your Facebook page then. And we'll make links right. to that so people can keep up to date. It is the 60th anniversary this year. So right. um, it's a shame that okay. uh, the government's still fighting tooth and nail not to release documents about it. Uh, but you can right. draw the conclusion right. that... that uh, they have something to hide their involvement. Right. I mean, if you look at Mayor Mary Meyer, her death in was in 1964, a month after the Warren report was released, and she got she was part of the Washington set, so she got an early look at it. She was outraged and was insisting that people need to do something. She was very strident, and she turns up dead um, within a month of that. Um, killed on a, in, um, one of the parkways in, in Washington where she lived. And um, she's an example. And then there's, of course, Dorothy Kilgallen, the reporter, who had um, gotten um, some close interviews with Jack Ruby and had made statements that, with, that what she learned would blow the whole case wide open. And within a week, she was also dead. And she had shared, uh, she carried around her files in a suit, I mean, in a briefcase with a lock and key and sometimes a, uh, um, like a wrist, a wrist lock. And um, when she was found dead, that, that briefcase was gone. And she had given copies of some of her notes to Florence Pritchard, who was a friend of both uh, Kennedy and her. And Florence Pritchard turns up dead a week later with all, with, the files that she had missing. Um, some pretty com- uh, pretty compelling tragedies. Um, I, I know um, Belsner did that book on the, the witnesses, and uh, Mark Lane, I think, did, did a, uh, an analysis of how many witnesses um, were dead, and it was beyond statistical coincidence. Um, and... I'm thinking I um, probably could use another question. <laughs> well, no problem. No, I, I thought you were about to read a poem, and I, I just interrupted you just asking, because I'm always interested in if the interest of the assassination differs from myself. I mean, I, I heard about it, and then and then uh, you hear about the Warren Commission. They said one guy did it and go back to sleep. And then you see Commission Exhibit 399, and you say, wait a minute. And then you look at the Zapruder film and you go, well, something's wrong. And the more you look into it, the dirtier it looks, right? And uh, right. I think as, as, you know, being a fan of lyric and poetry, when, when Bob Dylan's uh, Murder Most Foul came out, you went, wow, he just hit this in the, on the nail on the head, you know? And then so when your well, book I think, came yeah, to mind. I, I, I think Dylan's work is kind of stream of consciousness where he's almost, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost like he's having different voices and sometimes you can hear a voice that would sound like it could be Kennedy and and others even you know the person on the street 
Now, and, even uh, a narrator style, just telling you, you know, uh, you know, don't worry about your brothers. We'll take care of them too. Right, right, exactly. I also have to give a nod to Bob. Um, the, he has a, a litany of songs in the second, uh, the, the last portion of his seventeen-minute song, and it just keeps flitting from one song or one movie clip to another, to another, to another. And the second last one in his litany is the drums of Dumbarton, which is a Scottish song. But um, in it, um, depending on if a female sings it, is I dream, um, I dream, um, I miss my Johnny. And if it's sung by a man, it's I miss my genie. <laughs> so anyway, I I, um, I wonder if Bob read my book. But, you know, you were talking about the protocols, and I have a poem in here called The Breach and Protocol. And this was definitely um, something I learned from reading Fletcher Prouty. Most of the Kennedy cabinet was at a conference in Honolulu on November 20th, 1963, with Ambassador to Vietnam Henry Cabot Lodge, a flight 12 hours from the mainland. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Special Operations Chief was deployed in the South Pole in November 1963, as far away from the scene of execution of the Commander Chief as humanly possible, a mere day or two to the nearest aircraft carrier and phone connection. Some things are never done in the name of national security, Colonel Fletcher Prouty reports. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The President and Vice, Pre Vice President never travel together. They rarely appear together in the same rooms. Cabinet members do not attend the same public events. President Kennedy and Vice President Johnson both slept that night in Fort Worth, Texas. Ironclad security procedures were not executed for the motorcade in Dallas. And that's the word he, he used in his uh, writing. Motorcade slower than 30 miles per hour must have personnel on the ground in buildings and on rooftops. Armed secret service are stationed along the route. All windows overlooking the route must be closed. Sewer covers must be welded shut. People holding umbrellas and coats are watched. There are no SS on the ground in Dallas. The Dallas SS details wined and dined the night before. They are hung over the next day. The motorcade route is changed. The motorcade flows to make three turns. No secret service covers the Texas school book depository where the motorcade turns. The president's limousine slows for the last turn. The police chief car pulls aside out of the motorcade. The police motorcycles hang back on the turn. The secret service are ordered off the limousine. The limousine slows again to make the second turn and shots ring out. And indeed, one of the interests I, I, I've taken with this book was looking at a lot of the the meta uh, meta communication, if you will. I I, I really want to commend Robert Roden on his work for the House assassination hearings, and he put together an incredible um, collection of photographs and the videos from that day that were in custody. And he actually creates this collage 
you will, of the motorcade as it's moving from the various sites along the route, spliced together from different filmmakers, some news and some um, eyewitness amateur film makers that day. And, and, and it, it gives a picture of the progress of the motorcade. And you can see the car stop. You can see Police Chief Curry's uh, vehicle pull out of the motorcade when it was, it was leading, it was in front of Kennedy's car, and it pulls out so that there's nothing in front of Kennedy's car. So he's out of the line of fire, et cetera. And um, you can see the car slow down and make the turn. And I wrote a poem about that. I have a couple. One of them's called Dealey Plaza. And another one is called Dealey Plaza Part Two. And um, one of the things that I started to see was a, um, a, I'm theorizing in in the digression of the poem that there were men on the scene who were giving signals, and there are other people who have this theory as well. And in one of the films that Robert Groden has is this very short sequence, probably. Uh, it's under 10 seconds, maybe 15, of a figure stepping out right across the street from the Texas School Book Depository. And um, he seems to be related to another man who is appears on the Zepruder film who's wearing a bulletproof vest. And they seem to be perhaps exchanging information with each other. Um, I wonder if... That was another well, thing, I, you know, that you point out here. Your book has quite a few photos in it for a book of poetry. So there's quite a few photos of Dealey Plaza, things going on that kind of reflect the different moods that your poems take you through. Right. And the book is um, has two appro- two kind of uh, intentions or themes, if you will. One is, one is some, a theory about the crime scene itself is, is a this is this, um, I have a background in graphic art, uh, computer programming, printing, film and video, and and then communication theory. And so, I and I also have worked in costume and set design. But I have um, brought both the idea of poetics as sort of um, the idea of the metaphors and the meaning and the, and the emotional aspect, but also of looking at these images of the scene and I think I'll, I'll go ahead and share this one called Pauline Lone Man on the scene. As the president's limousine turns from Houston onto Elm, a lone man, tall and lean, tall enough to be seen on the scene, the tall lean lone man steps out as the limousine turns from Houston onto Elm. The tall, lean, lone man steps out from behind the tree next to the pool as the limousine turns from Houston onto Elm. As the, at the pergola next to, as the limousine turns from Houston onto Elm, the reflecting pool. As the limousine turns from Houston onto Elm, the tall, lean, lone man steps out onto the curb as the limousine turns from Houston onto Elm. The tall, lean, lone man steps out, swaggers slightly, 
buttons his black suit coat while stepping onto the curb as the limousine turns from Houston onto Elm. Down the block, down the block a few hundred feet, CIA assassin man David Morales stands, wearing a bulletproof vest. CIA man sees the tall, lean, lone man step out. The brooder camera sees Morales hold his right arm out, palm up, as Kennedy's limousine goes by. Umbrella goes up. Kennedy's limousine stops. CIA man drops his arm. 57 witnesses say the car stops. Shot ring out. Kennedy limousine stops. More shots ring out. Tall, lean, lone man retreats into the shadows. Very good. Let me see. Yeah, it's using repetition. <laughs> go ahead. It's using a, a kind of a stop action approach in this poem. Yeah. How many poems are there on here? It looks like maybe 30 or 40. I never did count them, so that would be my guess, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. it's 100, 168 pages, and uh, right. let's just call it 40, and there's kind of a couple of little sections that are almost like a little short story or a little biography of somebody. And, um, and right. like I say, there's also photos that go in there, right? Um, like you were just talking about the raising the arm, the radio man, the umbrella man, and... and uh, all sorts of people, right. but it, uh, right. um, I think anybody yeah. who had an interest in the assassination would find this very interesting and maybe informative. And uh, sometimes you have thoughts that you can't quite articulate, and then a poet, you'll read something and they'll say, "That's how I felt." Yeah, they were better at um, at articulation and just you know focusing thoughts, and uh, you know, kind of the idea with lyrics as well. You know. Mm-hmm. Speaking of lyrics, well, like uh, for Jack Ruby, I I wrote a poem called Jack Ruby the Gunrunner. It's after the, the the song The Wanderer by Dion. Um, well, I'm the type of guy who's all over town where spies, guns, and girls are. You know I'll be down. I'm at Dealey. I'm hiding a gun on the big day. I'm at the Daly, Dallas Daily Mirror, then back on Maine. They call me the gunrunner. Yeah, the club owner. I roam around and around. And the poem goes on about the many different sightings of Jack Ruby throughout the days, even at a press conference where he corrects a reporter, where he knows more. He has more, and he's of course Jack Ruby is of course the the man who found the the magic bullet on the um, gurney at the hospital. So he was there that uh, as well, and and then finally he um, is a filmed shooting Oswald on Sunday morning and um, taking Oswald to his lowly end, I guess you could say. Um, I have a poem on Oswald called Where's Oswald? And I I definitely take a nod to um, the work by Jim Douglas um, called The Unspeakable. And he's a highly credible source in, in Kennedy research and and he really made a point in his book about showing the multiple Oswalds and um, I know that you had a guest on your program uh, maybe more than once who's who's done some very significant work on teasing out the threads of Harvey and Lee and um, 
that that's some pretty significant research in the, the yeah, whole that's thing. John Armstrong probably. And you know, regardless if you subscribe to everything, there is just undisputable evidence of somebody impersonating Lee Oswald or people saying, Well, I, I saw him here, I saw him behind the Texas theater, or I saw this guy in the in the balcony. I you know, you see a look alike and you just wonder how many of them were there and then you go, Well, how how organized was this? This is like, you know, uh, the intelligence community, right? So. Yeah, that that makes me think of this poem here called High Treason Number One. Well, okay. it was the Go price. Ahead. Read that, yeah. I, I'll just maybe do a stanza or two. Um, what does it cost to kill a president? What was the price to kill President Kennedy in 1963? Ten million, they say, a rich amount then. Even a king's ransom. Oh, here's the breakdown. Five million in political payoffs and hush money. Two million at 10,000 each for the assassination 18. One million or so for equipment and expenses. Another million for the 18 control men. And one million in booty for the best hit, courtesy of mob boss Carlos Marcello. So that makes 12 million. A king's ransom, you might say, in high treason. And we'll leave it at that. Uh, there's, there's more of a litany of players listed, but... Okay. Now, when did you put this out? Is it a couple of years old now? Um, yes, it's actually, I, um, I've been accumulating poems since the first one in the early 70s. And, um, and then it was published in 2013 for the, um, the 50th anniversary. And I've written new work um, that if I do, if, if the publisher wants to do another edition, that would go in there, and um, okay. Well, that's very encouraging that you all, you have something new on the horizon coming up. Yeah, maybe you could. Maybe we could do a program on the new poems. <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to go through that book. It, it took me a while to get this one done, but I'm just so glad to to uh, always promote people who are doing good and interesting work. Uh, and um, it, if you're interested in this topic, this is very worthwhile. And I'll make links where people. Uh, can get it and and keep in contact with you on your Facebook page. Um, Thank is, you. Is there something I wanted to I, I wanted to see if you would like to hear a poem called John John's Legacy. Yes, and, for sure. Uh, Go ahead. And then maybe the la the the piece on the um, John Kennedy song. So the John John's Legacy also has a lot of repetition. I hope you don't. But that helps us pause. Go ahead. Why? Why? Why would? Why would John John? John Kennedy Jr., son of the assassinated president. Why? Why? Why would John John Jr., son of silent stalwart Jacqueline Bouvier, brother of Caroline's serious survivor strategist, son of jovial Jack, assassinated leader of the free world, gunned down like a criminal in the street. Why? Why? Why would John John name his magazine? Why would John Jr., son of the assassinated president, name his magazine, his publishing testament, his one legacy? 
Why would John Kennedy Jr. name his magazine George? That name George. Why George? Who's George? Oh, oh yes, great George. He must mean George Washington, father of our country, George. Not that rat bastard king of dirty old England, George. What does John Kennedy Jr. say about the assassination of his father, the 35th president, John F. Kennedy? No, he meant the good George, not the other one. You know, the bad one, not the George H.W. seen on Dealey Plaza, World War II's youngest fighter pilot and CIA action man, tactical leader of the Bay of Pigs foiled operation, later named head of the CIA to stop the Senator Church House Select Committee assassination hearings in 1979, the one who made a fortune on the spoils of the Kennedy tragedy. No, not the bad George. The one whose name fathered a presidential dynasty? No, not the name you can't say. Is John Kennedy Jr., son of the assassinated president, hiding the name in plain sight on the cover of his magazine? Is he telling us something to look beyond the triangle hat, George? Why would John Kennedy Jr. name his magazine George? Why not Jack? What was he saying? What's it mean? Is he hiding something in plain sight for us to see? What would John Kennedy Jr. say about the assassination of his father if he had a chance to speak? Food for thought. Yeah. All right. And were you saying there was one one other one you wanted to sure. read as well? Right. This would be the proper... Irish ballad for John Kennedy. So this is to the tune of Bansell Hill, which is uh, written by an Irish immigrant in the 1800s, wishing he was back home in Ireland at the village center, which is Bansell Hill, missing everyone there. And um, what what about the Jackie poem? Should I share the Jackie poem first? Okay, sure, go ahead. Okay. I just want people to get oh, an idea Jackie. of, you know, what you... Yeah. Oh, Jackie, so bright. Oh, Jackie, the brightest and the best was yours. As you, quiet gal with the camera eye and the high-pitched voice, could see it through. Joseph Kennedy liked you, your style. You saw through him and reached an understanding to share Jack with all. Jack could not be held nor known. They each and all loved him. No one could leave a room in fact. He had to be shared. Joe told you that. Jack, the man for the whole world, chuckled with a cheerful, well-timed yarn, impatience for truth and news. They made you a widow. They shot at you, too. They killed Jack. Bullets burning bright by, tearing, searing the air, your husband dying in your lap. Through this public horror, his unassailed brilliance blazing, he always left so fast. They each and all loved him. He had to be shared. And, um... Yeah, she had a um, quite a cross to bear with 
She has been a emblem of dignity throughout. So the the last poem is this Irish ballad, and I might have to do it from memory. I'm not finding the page. Well, if you don't find it, that's fine then. Oh, no, I found it. It's, it's, again, it's by um, Michael Considine and the traditional, it's called Sad Grassy Knoll now, but the original is Spansel Hill. Last night, as I was thinking of a sad day the world once knew, me mind been bent on wandering. To Dallas, Texas, I flew. I went there sadly with grief burning, wanting all to know where democracy fell on Elm Street at the sad grassy knoll. It be November 22, 1963, the nation came to greet President John Kennedy, the black, the white, the left and right, to see and cheer their hero down at Dealey Plaza, just past the grassy knoll. Waving hello, shaking his hand, they all wanted to be so near, the smiling leader who inspired all to live without a fear. They saw his vision for peace, a good and righteous goal, shot at noon by snipers hiding under the knoll. I went to see the people to see what they would say. The old ones cried conspiracy, not one lone shooter that day. A plot played out to deceive. And the young ones just didn't know. Skeptics called it theory, hiding the killers on the knoll. I wonder if Kennedy had lived, if we might have had a peace. Would America now be better with justice for all increase? Not this lies and treachery in a land that lost its soul, where no one would know the sorrow of the sad grassy knoll, where no one would know the sorrow of the sad, grassy knoll. So I hope that's a proper, I hope that's a proper Irish ballad for probably I mean, a true benchmark in American history. And some people have said the fall of the last real president. Okay, the whole world stopped, an LG for John F. Kennedy and the American Dream by Jeannie S. Dean. All right, thank you so much for uh, sharing the book with me, Jeannie, and uh, reading a few of the poems. And we'll hope that we inspire people to look up more of your work and perhaps purchase your book. And thank you so much, Lynn, um, for all your work and for giving me a shout out here. And I'm really glad to get to know you and um, hope we'll have some other opportunities in the future. So, yeah, yeah, we will. We will. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, then. Talk to you again. Yep. Okay. Bye-bye now. Good night.